0: Greetings and welcome to Community Conversations on LCC Connect. I'm your host, Bo Garcia, Dean of the Community Education and Workforce Development Division at Lansing Community College. Community Conversations is a space where we explore business, workforce, and community development and discuss how these issues impact our quality of life and standard of living. Today we will be interviewing a very special guest, my friend and the 52nd Mayor of Lansing, Andy Shore. Welcome, Mayor Shore, and thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Bo. Well, before we get started, just a little bit about the mayor. Now, under Mayor Shore's leadership, Lansing has seen billions in new investments all across the city, either completed or in progress. His administration has increased access to recreational activities for residents and visitors alike with the opening of Beacon Park and the town center on the south side, the new Capital City Market and Rotary Park downtown. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, his administration brought partners together by creating a community response cabinet, issued small business rescue grants, helped residents with food, mortgage, and rental assistance, focused efforts on the homeless, and worked with public health leaders on preventing virus spread. Mayor Shore currently serves on the Accelerator for America board, the Capital Area United Way board, the Lansing Promise board, is a member of the Mayors Against Illegal Guns, and is a founding member of the National Gun Safety Coalition. Mayor Shore has also been appointed by Governor Gretchen Whitmer to serve on the state's Manufactured Housing Commission. The list goes on and on. But before we begin, you know, Mayor Schur, can you share with our listeners a little bit about yourself? where you're from and kind of why and how you came to be mayor of City of Lansing?
1: <laughs> well, sure. Well, thank you, uh, Bo, for having me on. Uh, we have known each other quite some time and, and I know you do wonderful work here at LCC, so I, I appreciate you and all you do for, for our students here. Um, you. you know, I, I, uh, I, I love being mayor. I'm in my, my fifth year. Uh, it is certainly challenging, but, but we get a lot of things done. Um, I grew up in New York. I grew up on Long Island. Huh and was there for 17 years, and then came to Michigan for college. Um, I'm a a Wolverine, so don't hold (laughs) it against me. Um, But uh, came here for college, and then right out of college, uh, moved to Lansing. Uh, I I really, I like the city. Um, I was working for a guy named Gary Peters at the time, who is now our US Senator, but he was in the state Senate, um, and just got to know the city, and just loved it. Hmm. Um, Really enjoyed Lansing. Uh, Ran for office as a county commissioner, where I served for 10 years. Uh, ran for office as a state representative. Uh, and then as, as I was serving in my, my last two years as representative, I had a lot of folks approach me about running for mayor. Right. Um, so I, I decided I would do that. I put my name out there and let the citizens decide and, and I won. Yep. And then last year I won again. So here I am as the, as the mayor of the, of the capital city, the great city of Lansing. And, and again, it's an honor and I'm, I'm proud to be here doing a fantastic job. Absolutely.
0: Um, So kind of along those lines, Mr. Mayor, could you tell us a little about the city of Lansing's goals in relation to economic development? You've had some big wins.
1: We've had some big wins and it's been great. I, I continually talk about growing the city. I mean, I want to grow all parts of the city from community services to uh, making sure people are housed, but economic development is a huge part of the growth. Um, it's making sure that we have access to to all kinds of things, whether it's downtown or an old town or Rio town on our corridors. Um, economic development is a huge piece of growing our city. Um, it provides uh, activities and things to do for people, for, uh, for the, For the young and old alike, mm-hmm. um, it provides uh, um, a boost to our neighborhoods it provides vibrancy, makes people want to come here um, so we've done a lot of work on economic development you know we've done you mentioned in your opening we've done stuff yeah. all over the city mm-hmm. um, so we you know we, one of the, my prouder projects that that I was able to be part of is the the capital city market downtown oh, um, yeah. we had a i'd say a food desert um, we had right. a, a real open area where there was you couldn 't get groceries and now we 've got this incredible uh, urban yes. uh, Meyer store, which is great, and there's a ho- new hotel, the first one in about 30 years, right. um, and some housing that's there. Um, we've done development on the south side, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done development in, in north on the north side. We've got some uh, mixed-use uh, uh, apartments that are going to be opening in Northtown, mm-hmm. uh, right on the border of Old Town. Uh, we opened Red Cedar and finalized Red Cedar and opened that. Right. So it, it's just we're doing work all over the all over the city. Um And the more options people have to shop and to walk and and to go to, um, the more options they have for housing um, whether it's it's uh, affordable, or whether it's market rate, um, these are all things that grow the city and it's all economic development
0: so true and you know it's so balanced it's comprehensive it's across the board it's across the city and it's you know it's it's very very strategic and kind of along those lines departmentally, how is the city structured to kind of capitalize upon, you know, economic development opportunities? And, and how does your, how's your team make this happen?
1: We've got a few different pieces. Um, we have what's called the Lansing Economic Development Corporation. And uh, and they do a lot of our work. We we were partnering with LEAP, the Lansing Economic Area Partnership, which is uh, three counties. We're partnering with them. Um, we have since uh, split off and we're, we're doing it on our own and working with LEAP at the same time. So we work regionally. With, uh, with Bob Trezeis and our friends over at, at LEAP. But then we also have our own economic development corporation. Um, not only do we get people who reach out to us who want to do work in our city, but, but we reach out to, to folks who we think will invest in the city. We go out to other communities. Um, we do a lot of work to try and, and bring in investments. At the same time, we have a separate development office in our city that deals with housing. Mm-hmm. So you see a lot of the, the housing projects, the community development block grants, um, you see a lot of that go through our development office. They do planning and zoning. So that Mm -hmm. way we know that there are certain things that are expected in certain areas. You're not going to have a a big factory in the middle of a neighborhood. You have to have the appropriate (laughs) planning. So we've got a planning and zoning office. We have a development office, and then we have our economic development corporation, all working hand in hand um, as we we grow the city.
0: Highly collaborative. I've been a part of a number of those meetings over the course of years. And Highly productive, highly efficient, very strategic, very well designed. Kind of along those lines, you know, how how does the city partner with perhaps federal or state government and private sector? And and what type of tools uh, does the city have at its disposal to kind of make some of these these things happen.
1: We partner with, uh, with all three, with all, you know, with all of those. We partner with the federal government. Uh, we work very closely with HUD, the Housing and Urban Development. Um, they provide economic development dollars. They provide um, dollars for uh, uh, affordable housing, for, uh, for low-income housing. Um, we partner with MISHTA, mm-hmm. the State Housing and Development Authority, very closely. We work with the Michigan Economic Development Corporation. When mm-hmm. um, you mentioned you know, incentives, uh, we work with, when you, when you build in a city, um, you can a developer can build in a in in a, a township a, a greenfield area and mm-hmm. just build right upwards. Mm-hmm. Um, if they want to build in a city, a lot of times there are extra costs to mm-hmm. rehab a building or to uh, clean up uh, environmental contamination. Mm-hmm. So we have what's called a brownfield tool, and the brownfield tool allows us if someone comes in and says, you know, it would cost me a hundred dollars in in this this green space, mm-hmm. but. $200 to do it in the city, but I want to do it in the city because mm-hmm. that's where the people are. It's where the density is. Right. Um, we can say, okay, you're going to build, you're going to spend your $100. And then we're going to get new taxes from that because it's it's occupied land. And mm-hmm. we'll take from those new taxes, we'll reimburse that extra $100 you have to spend because mm-hmm. of cleanup. Um, so they'll still invest, but we'll also be able to help out um, to equalize For developers to make sure they can develop in our city. So, we do that a lot. Um, We have an obsolete property tool called Uh the Obsolete Property and Rehabilitation Uh Act, and that will um, freeze taxes where it's at for buildings that are there. Uh And then um, we can put those dollars back into the building and help out um, folks who want to redevelop. Um, we have some housing incentives. We have um, beautiful. We have all kinds of different tools that we can use. Um, we have some grants. We have some loans. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of loans, micro, mm-hmm. micro enterprise loans, small business loans Great. to help out small business owners. So we use as much of that as we can um, as we try and help. Now, it's not giving away tax dollars. No. No, um, it is uh, it's it's making ends meet in the proposal. it's it's mm-hmm. closing a finance gap. If someone can come to us and say, you know, I need uh, I need to spend X dollars to do this project, but I only have this much. We mm-hmm. help to close that finance gap, and then again, yeah. if it's a loan, we get it back. And mm-hmm. um, but we don't give away tax dollars. We we do right. what we need to do to make projects happen. Otherwise, there will be no tax dollars at all.
0: Thank you for explaining it that way. <laughs> that is that is so important for our listeners to understand. These are not costs. These are investments, mm-hmm. and. It's a collaborative effort between, you know, public and private sector. So it's a win-win for the entire community. We, be, we see development, increased taxes, increased support for resources for the community. You know, it, it, that's textbook. That's great. Thank you. Thank you again for, we, for taking that. I
1: mean, time. we would certainly love for people to come in and just build and we don't have to help. But they won't because they sure. can't make it work. I was yeah. in Austin, Texas, and you know they were they had developers coming and they were just building up on these empty lots. And, mm-hmm. and we'd certainly do that too. Sure. But we are a, a built environment, so you have to to help out to make costs work in a built environment.
0: Absolutely, and this it is it's, it's, it's working. It's it obviously
1: working. <laughs> it is working.
0: Yeah. So, kind of to that end, can you give us a? perhaps an example of how the city of Lansing capitalized upon an uh, economic development opportunity recently?
1: Yeah, we've done uh, quite a few. Um, We had an announcement, I don't know, a few weeks ago um, with a company called Neogen. They do food testing. Yes. um, And they've got their international headquarters is right here in Lansing. And they wanted to build a, you know, a, a $70 million um, building mm-hmm. and, and put something like a few hundred jobs in there. So mm-hmm. we were able to utilize the brownfield tool where we gave, uh, I don't know, seven or $8 million in future taxes that's gonna be generated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the the Michigan Economic Development Corporation did the same. Mm-hmm. So they're still gonna spend, you know, 50 whatever million. And then we put in some in for future taxes. Mm-hmm. And so does the MEDC. Um, and now we're gonna get a few hundred, you know, very good jobs and, mm-hmm. and uh, a, a new building. And, um, You saw it with uh, with GM, Mm -hmm. you know, we're bringing in one of the only battery plants in the world, right right here into Lansing, 2.7 billion with a B dollars in investment, 1700 jobs. Um, So we had to give them uh, a a property tax uh, incentive, Mm -hmm. which was not a lot. Sure. Um, the state gave them, uh, some incentive dollars and then mm-hmm. helped out us with infrastructure because you have to be able to power that. Sure, sure. Um, and now here they're coming and, and, uh, we're yeah. working with them and we're, you know, you're gonna have 1700 more people oh, yeah. in the region who are going to be here and, and be active and, and, um, get great jobs. And some sure. will live in Lansing, some won't, but it's just going to be a great thing for the region. Oh, absolutely. Um, so we're excited and the plant's going to be in Lansing. it's in Delta township, right. but it's in Lansing right. territory in Delta right. township. And, uh, so we're really excited. So again, we utilized city and state tools for that. And we partnered with Delta township in mm-hmm. a regional way for a, a tax sharing agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really was, uh, an example of, of just a great community coming together. Oh my
0: goodness. You know, that, that's a great example. And the engine having been an MSU spinoff, keeping yeah. them here and, and, uh, and as you said, you know, Ultium, you know, you've got seventeen hundred new manufacturing jobs. Think of all the spin off jobs that are gonna occur from that. Small businesses that'll be started because of that. Yeah. But for these new manufacturing jobs, small businesses that will be sustained from that. I mean, what a you talk about an investment. That's Textbook.
1: Yeah. Well, and we also, we do think there's going to be lots of spinoff. You're hundred percent right. Um, I know LCC will be very involved, which yes. is helpful. Um, we also know that, um, that because of this, it's going to make sure that our, our two assembly plants are very likely to, you know, to, to be active. Um, right. when you're building batteries somewhere, you don't want to transport. You don't want to transport them too far. Right. So we expect that they'll be transported to cars that are being built Lansing Grand River downtown or Lansing Delta Township, right yeah. next door to the battery plant. So we're really excited for the future oh. of those plants as well as spinoffs, as well as you know the the building of the Ultium battery plant. Yeah. All of it's going to be incredible.
0: Incredible. And, and Just filling the supply chain. That's right. Yeah, fantastic. So so along those lines, um, why are these partnerships important to our listeners in in relation to how it affects their employment, wages, education, poverty levels mm-hmm. crime rate etc
1: absolutely well its it, it's all of this economic development means a it means jobs yeah. um, so we have just an incredible number of jobs that are available um, it means good paying jobs um, and that you know keeps people out of poverty when you when you have the skills and you have a, a Lansing Community College you have um, the the folks that can train uh, and then come out of LCC and 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 uh, and go right into the job force you know for me right my kids are in the Lansing public schools they can graduate they can go to LCC for free with the Lansing Promise. They can get trained up. They can come right out and have these skills where they're ready to go. And and we have that here that, that really others don't have. So it's a win. It's a win with education. It's a win to get bring people out of out of poverty and to help mm-hmm. them. Um, it's a win with with um, profit and it's mm-hmm. a win with, you know, everybody wants to make money, right? That's, that's, uh, that's how we, we live our lives. And it's uh, an option to be able to, to do that. So the investments that we bring in, when we say two to three billion dollars of investments, mm-hmm. that leads to jobs, that leads to money money back into the community it leads to tax dollars so we can provide police and fire and code compliance and parks and and all of that so it's all a kind of a cycle where the more economic development you have the more opportunity the more dollars um, for people and for government um, that's how you you really uh, grow a a community and that's uh, that's what we're relying on
0: boy i tell you that is a great return you talk about return on investment there it is. Day in our daily lives, things that we notice and, and don't even notice along the way yeah. but for these types of investments and collaborations might not be here. So, you know, Mayor Short, are there any economic or societal trends that you see emerging that perhaps our community members should take into consideration as they're planning their education or changing careers or upskilling or anything along those lines?
1: Here we see a lot. You know, we, we certainly have a, um, we have state government, which is our biggest employer. So the opportunities um, in public service and, and in any of the areas, whether it's agriculture, whether it's, you know, IT, it doesn't really matter. We have opportunities to state government. We're seeing IT jobs becoming very popular, um, we have a company called Dewpoint here that that uh, is incredible and they do a lot of work. Um, and we have, you know, Liquid Web. We have uh, mm-hmm. ACDNet. We've got a whole variety of these these uh, technology companies, mm-hmm. which have been fantastic. Um, healthcare, care. Yep. Um, we know we, we just saw, you know, a multi uh, multi multi million dollar right. uh, 700 million dollar new hospital that was built. Yep. And then uh, in McLaren yep. over on the east side and southeast side. And now Sparrow is going to be putting several hundred million dollars. Into their property downtown, yeah. um, so we're seeing whether it's doctors, whether it's uh, researchers, whether it's it's uh, um, uh, facility workers. Um, we know that there's a lot of healthcare jobs available um, right here. Um, we have a, a capital area Michigan Works mm-hmm. that helps people to retrain and that helps to match them with jobs. Um, the unemployment rate is is going down right. because so many jobs are available. We're seeing staff shortages in right. every industry, so people can kind of uh, pick their pick what they want to do um, and make some money doing it. Right. So um, there's lots of different opportunities right now, almost anywhere. If you want to come work for the city of Lansing, <laughs> we have many jobs available. We have engineering jobs. There we have, is. you know, you name it. Um, everybody right now is, is hiring. So this is a good time to figure out what do you love? What yeah. do you want to do? And then go out and find that job.
0: That's great insight. Thank you. Well, last question there. Is, uh, is there anything else you'd like to share in relation to your economic and community development plan for the for the city of Lansing in the future.
1: Well, you know we we have a lot going on. Um, we we want to. Um we're out recruiting businesses to come here. We're restructuring buildings. You know, we we have been challenged in parts of our downtown because uh, state employees went home for the pandemic and they're only half, about halfway back. So our downtown has been a little bit challenged, but we're doing some conversions. Um, We're creating a lot of housing downtown. Mm -hmm. We want to double the housing downtown because the more people you have living downtown, the more people that are walking and walkability and and shopping at the shops. Um, You see a lot more nighttime and weekend traffic. Um, So we're, we're doing some work there. We're doing a lot of work on the Corridors. Yeah. You're going to see a lot of work on the on the Saginaw uh, corridor. A lot of work on the MLK corridor. Beautiful. Um, Michigan Avenue is going to see millions of dollars in improvements. And uh, so there's just there's going to be work going on everywhere. Like you said before, it's it really is focused everywhere. You know, from the the west side to Michigan Avenue to Kalamazoo, where Allen Place just opened up new you know new yeah. apartments and services. The south side, whether it's it's MLK or Pennsylvania Cedar. Um, it's going on everywhere. It's going on the North side with, Mm -hmm. uh, over, uh, the old Masonic temple and in old town, um, going North. So there's just, there's tons going on. There's, there's, there's so much that you can't even kind of put together a list and talk about in a show. Right. Um, but we're going to keep pushing for all of that. Um, and then of course our, we're, we're working on a new performing arts center. Right. And, uh, that is probably one of my, my most exciting things right now, yeah. um, getting a new uh, concert hall right downtown where people don't have to go to Grand Rapids and, and, uh, Beautiful. and Detroit right now. They can stay right here and it'll be a great boon for our, our downtown and for Rio town. Um, so we're working on a lot of things, a lot of pieces at play and we're real busy, but um, it's good stuff.
0: Wow. Wow, we could talk for another <laughs> hour could. about this. What a great conversation. I just, you know, thank you, Mir, for, for taking time out of your, your very busy schedule to share your thoughts with our listeners today. And thank you all for the pleasure and privilege of your time. This has been your host, Bo Garcia, and I look forward to sharing time with you again soon. Have a tremendous day. Featuring the staff faculty, students, and others that help to make Lansing's premier college what it is today. You're listening to LCC Connect. To find out more about our featured programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org.
2: LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. K-12 Operations at Lansing Community College has been a proud collaborator of the Lansing Promise Scholarship since 2012.
3: The Lansing Promise Scholarship offers graduating high school seniors who live within the Lansing School District and attend a high school within district boundaries an opportunity to attend LCC. Since its inception, over 1,000 enrolled students have saved over $2 million, earning over 400 degrees and certificates as well as 30,000 credits at LCC. For more information on the Lansing Promise
2: Scholarship, please visit lcc.edu hope.
3: Most of my family, they never graduated high school or even let alone go to college, so I'm trying to break that barrier. My daughter, Brooklyn, was also a motivation for me to go back to school. Every day after work, went straight
1: to school, studied hard, and, and it paid off.
2: At age 26, Kareem finished his high school diploma.
1: I could not have done it alone. I feel like if I didn't have anyone to push me, I wouldn't I'd even bother to do it. I got one
3: milestone down the drain, and now I got to work on the next. I see the future is really bright for me. I feel like it doesn't matter the age, as long as you go back and get it done. The high school diploma is just added to the confidence,
1: and now I feel unstoppable.
2: No one gets a diploma alone. You have more support than you realize. The Modern Warehousing Program through the Job Training Center at Lansing Community College is an industry-led program that prepares individuals for frontline material handling and supply chain logistics positions in medical centers, fulfillment centers, warehouses, and factories. Those who complete this program earn multiple employer-recognized certifications in six short weeks and get a chance to meet with local employers about their future. Visit lcc.edu slash jtctraining. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. It's time for another edition of Equa Tea. Equa is a play on words spelled E Q U I T E A. Why? Because I just love sharing knowledge over a good cup of tea. Equity is designed to provide you with tips on issues surrounding diversity, equity, and inclusion to enhance your everyday life. Today's equity topic is entitled Starting the DEI Conversation. Again, starting the DEI conversation. What does DEI stand for? Just as a reminder, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Oftentimes we're asking, well, how do we get diversity, equity, inclusion inside of a conversation within the workplace? I've got four quick tips to help you along your way. Number one, we first must recognize the difference between equality and equity. When everyone in the workplace gets the same thing or the same shoe, as I like to use the analogy, that's called equality. Equity, on the other hand, is giving everyone a shoe size that matches them personally. That becomes equity. Equitable workspaces are those that demonstrate a commitment to changes in policies, procedures, and even intentional ways of cultural belonging. Number two, In our quest on DEI conversations in the workplace. We must begin by infusing diversity throughout the organization. When diversity is infused throughout any organization, conversations are more easily had. Just think about your department, your unit, whether it's large or small, it has the ability to have more conversations openly when the diversity of perspectives, of ideas and experiences are at hand. Number three, to have DEI conversations in the workplace, we must begin to identify and address implicit bias. Identifying and addressing implicit bias allows us to recognize that certain conversations and certain behaviors are not tolerated. Having a stereotype about a certain group or person, for example, is a type of implicit bias. Each person has different types of experiences that they bring to our workspaces. And so recognizing and celebrating differences is very important. For more information on implicit bias, check out Harvard dot com. They have an implicit bias test that's free for all. And I'm guaranteeing you'll love it. Number four and the last tip In our DEI conversation in the workplace, we must begin to create spaces for courageous conversations. It has to be an intentional effort on behalf of the organization or workspace that allows teams, that allows individuals to talk about their experiences as well as to listen to other stories. When we do this, conversations in the workplace don't have to be as difficult as they need to be. We're able to share our beliefs, our cultural understanding, linguistic needs and more. But more importantly, we're able to talk courageously from our authentic selves, which brings about awareness, causing more harmony in the workplace. So I just gave you four tips on starting the DEI conversation in the workplace. Here's a review. Number one. Know the difference between equity and equality. Number two, infuse diversity throughout the organization. Number three, identify and constantly address any forms of implicit bias. And last but not least, number four, create a space for courageous conversations. Now go ahead and grab your favorite cup of tea and take a sip on all of these great tips. This has been another edition of Equa Tea. We'll see you next time.
0: sharing the voices of Lansing Community College. Visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes.
2: Vision. Lansing Community College welcomes transfer students. Transfer students may apply prior credits toward their LCC degree, certificate, or transfer program. Learn more at lcc.edu slash you belong. As a young teenage boy, I didn't even know what autism was. How do you even spell that? A few years later, I heard that a friend's cousin's son had been diagnosed with autism. I still wasn't sure what that really meant. When I went to college, my roommate's brother had autism. When I moved to the city for work, my best friend called me and told me his son had been diagnosed with autism. We were both in shock. I still remember the day I walked into the house and saw that look on my wife's face. I knew something was wrong. I'll never forget how I felt when she said, Our son has autism.
0: Autism is getting closer to home. Today, one in 110 children is diagnosed with autism. That's a 600% increase in the last 20 years. Learn the signs at AutismSpeaks.org. Early
2: diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Melissa Kaplan, and I host a show called Galaxy Forum on LCC Connect. It's all about the creativity in our classrooms and on campus here at LCC and the connections we have with the community. You can catch Galaxy Forum here on LCC Connect or listen anytime at lccconnect.org. Lansing Community College students now have the option to go beyond an associate degree through LCC's University Center. The University Center is a partnership between LCC and five four-year universities. Located on LCC's downtown campus, these universities offer junior and senior level courses. To find out more about the University Center, visit lcc.edu.
0: LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision.
3: From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. To begin this episode, I will read the Lansing Community College Land Acknowledgement Statement as I have in Part 1 and Part 2 of our look at the indigenous lands of MidMichigan and how those lands came to be dispossessed from the original inhabitants of them. And The Lansing Community College Land Acknowledgement Statement is as follows. Lansing Community College occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg. Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi peoples. In particular, the city of Lansing and LCC reside on lands ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. And that 1819 Treaty of Saginaw is the starting point for this, part three of our exploration into this subject. The Treaty of Saginaw uh, negotiated in 1819 and going into effect in 1820 was one of the most important land cession treaties for all of the indigenous peoples who would live under the area of land that was impacted by that treaty. And that includes the Potawatomi that lived in the middle part of the lower peninsula, as well as the Odawa and Ojibwa as well. If you can imagine looking at a map of the lower peninsula of Michigan, And take the middle part of that peninsula and draw a line roughly from just south of, a bit south of Lansing, pretty close to where I-94 runs nowadays. And imagine that line being bisected by Jackson and protruding about 40 miles each way. So in total, about an 80-mile-long line running roughly congruent to where I-94 runs through that part of Michigan now. And then, from the left end of that line, drawing a northerly, but veering to the east. So, northeast direction line, pretty much straight up, all the way up to near where the Michigan town of Atlanta is located nowadays. And then, from there, over to Lake Huron. From the other end of that 80-mile line uh, in the southern part of the Lower Peninsula, the land cession that was made as a result of the Treaty of Saginaw runs roughly about uh, to form, again, the other boundary, about another 60, 50 or 60 miles or so north, and then from there veering in a, about a 45-degree angle over to Lake Huron, where it runs into the shore right about the northern part of the Thumb. And all the area in between, if you will, those lines, that was the land cession made by the Treaty of Saginaw. The Treaty of Saginaw was a very large cession when one considers the overall size of the Lower Peninsula. And it was significant because it was one of the earlier treaties that was negotiated after the United States federal government changed the way that it had tried to include various stipulations in land session treaties, and we have to take a little bit of a step back here now. And for those of you who haven't listened to part one and part two of this episode, I strongly encourage you to do so because they provide much of the background information to where we are beginning our exploration now in this part three. And in the earlier episodes of this series, we discussed why Congress had to make land session treaties and A land cession treaty is exactly as the title suggests. It is a treaty between the United States federal government and an indigenous community. The Constitution refers to them as Indian tribes. So for legal purposes, we will use that term here. And it all comes down to Article 1, Section 8 in the U.S. Constitution, where in Article 1, the Constitution spells out how Congress will be made up and what his powers will be. And one of the powers that the Constitution delegates to Congress is to, quote, regulate foreign commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. And that has historically been interpreted to mean that Indian tribes have this curious, and by curious, I'm really referring to the legal arrangement uh, or the legal definition that this clause in the Constitution provides for Indian tribes, of somewhere between a completely independent nation and what the individual states in the United States have when it comes to sovereignty. And sovereignty, in a legal sense, is very much the key term, the key concept here. Uh, sovereignty could be defined as, essentially, the independence of a nation or a political body, if we choose to look at a nation as a political body, meaning a sovereign nation, a sovereign people in a republic, the sovereignty ultimately lies with the people, is an entity, a body politic, a group of people that is clearly defined in geography. So a sovereign nation has recognized borders. When the United States gained its independence from the United Kingdom, from the Revolutionary War, one of the uh, determining factors in the treaty that recognized American independence was a recognition of her boundaries, of the boundaries of the United States. And a sovereign nation has the ability to control what happens within those boundaries in regards to the law. So a sovereign nation has control over its laws A sovereign nation has control over its boundaries. Now, that's at the very basic sense what sovereignty is, and of course, within those very broad sweeping concepts, there are a multitude of other aspects of what that would mean with a nation that has its sovereignty. This is related to the land of the Anishinaabe in Michigan and other indigenous peoples because Article 1, Section 8 of the United States Constitution has been interpreted in the past as recognizing a degree of sovereignty within the, as the Constitution words it, Indian tribes. And so when the United States federal government went about acquiring indigenous lands, the interpretation of Article 1, Section 8 in the United States Constitution meant that the U.S. government had to enter into treaties with the Indian nations, it had to enter into treaties with the tribes, similarly to how it would enter into treaties with another nation. So, by the time we get to the era of land accession treaties, the legal reasoning behind those treaties is very much steeped in that part of the United States Constitution, And indeed, that same uh, area of the United States Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, it defines other powers or responsibilities of the Congress, of the national government, including to regulate commerce between the states. So that regulation of commerce between the states and the recognition of making treaties with foreign nations as well as the Indian tribes has therefore established this legal relationship that Indian nations have somewhere between a state and the power of the national government or the sovereignty of the national government when we are talking about the legal understanding of how sovereignty works with regards to tribal nations. Stemming from that clause in the U.S. Constitution, after the Constitution is ratified, the federal government makes an effort to gain possession of Indian lands through treaties. And as I mentioned a moment ago, land cession treaties is what most of these became known as because the end result was the indigenous peoples ceding, meaning to give away, in this case, land to the federal government. So, Conceptually, it was a legal process. In actuality, it was both a legal process and a process that involved a considerable degree of person to person negotiation. And in the case of Michigan, Lewis Cass is going to come into the picture here. If you are from Michigan and if you are at all familiar with any Michigan town, including I suspect your hometown, you have heard of the name Louis Cass at one point or another, whether you realize it or not. Because Many towns in Michigan have a street named after him. Probably the most famous Cass Road in uh, the state of Michigan would be Cass Avenue in Detroit, which is a a, uh, street that runs north-south, just to the west of Woodward Avenue in downtown Detroit, and then up into Midtown as well. And there are many other cities in the state of Michigan, small towns, medium-sized towns, cities that have a Cass Street or Cass Avenue in them. So, Lewis Cass is an important figure in our story here and here's why. In negotiating the land cession treaties, the federal government dispatched Indian agents as they were called. These were, well, agents, representatives of the federal government into the interior of the United States in the various parts that the federal government sought to negotiate land cession treaties. And Lewis Cass had been a very important person in Michigan history at this point, primarily through his role in the War of 1812, where he was one of the American military men who had a hand in commanding Fort Detroit after William Hall surrendered it to the British, sort of towards the beginning of the war. And by the time Cass is the uh, primary agent in negotiating land cession treaties, he is the territorial governor of Michigan. Uh, he was appointed to that post by President Madison in eighteen thirteen, and would hold that position for the next eighteen years. Michigan had a rather long period of uh, being a territory before it was admitted into the Union as a state. Now, his lasting legacy as territorial governor was more than anything the negotiator, the federal agent of these land cession treaties and. Cass had an idea that would turn out to be both um, right along the lines of what other white Americans thought at the time with regards to indigenous peoples, and it turned out to be very influential, accordingly, that idea. It was an idea by and large shared by Andrew Jackson, who's going to come into our story in a minute. And in 1819, the Treaty of Saginaw, then, is negotiated between the indigenous peoples who occupied that area that I had mentioned right towards the beginning of this episode. And that treaty set forth the large cession of land to the federal government per the legal understanding of what the constitution provided in terms of a legal relationship between the tribes and the federal government. It also was one of the earlier treaties negotiated that set aside land for the indigenous peoples who were losing the majority of their land vis-a-vis the treaty. And that would turn out to be a major component of future land session treaties. And it would also turn out to be a major component in a very large way of the future of federal government Indian policy toward indigenous peoples. And all this is going to impact the folks who lived where Lansing Community College is now. The Treatise of Saginaw and other similar treaties set forth a very small area, relatively speaking, to the very large area, by comparison, of land. that was ceded through the Land Session Treaties as a reserve. And these reserves were very small, again, by comparison, but the inclusion of that land in the Land cession Treaties was a, well, it was believed to be a guarantee that to some extent the tribal members would be able to remain on their land. And these land cession treaties included a lot of other things too, including many of them had clauses that allowed indigenous peoples to continue to hunt and fish on lands that they had ceded so long as those lands were not occupied or populated by white settlers, that has been a major area of litigation, actually, in tribal law recently, relatively recently, between the states, the tribes, and the federal government. But we'll leave that clause aside for now. The small reservation areas that were included in many of these land cession treaties are important because... The indigenous peoples who signed these land cession treaties oftentimes believed that in maintaining a small reservation of area that they could live permanently, or as they understood it, somewhat permanently, and then at the same time maintaining the rights to hunt and fish on the other lands that were ceded, many indigenous peoples believed that this was a situation that, While certainly not of their choosing, compared to some of the alternatives, they might be able to live with it, but there's a very important caveat to put into there. There's actually two of them. Number one, the land cession treaties negotiated between the federal government and the indigenous tribes were by no means conducted in the most ethical or scrupulous of matters. There are many uh, records that exist of land agents from the federal government using outright deceit and making deals with. One part of a tribe, but not the other. People like Louis Cass, and this is the second main point to consider with regards to this, had an expressed understanding of indigenous tribes that actually was not very accurate at all as to how they actually thought of themselves and how they lived. Cass believed that indigenous peoples lived in a permanent hunter state, to use his terminology. And in Cass's mind, that meant that either because they were incapable or unwilling to abide by the culture of agricultural white American settlers, they were incompatible with living near them. And as a result, Cass believed that the only way that indigenous peoples could, well, live anywhere, would be to have them separated from the white settlers. And this is an idea that's going to be adopted by Andrew Jackson, which gets us back to the Potawatomi and the indigenous peoples who lived where Michigan is now. After the Treaty of Saginaw has passed, the Potawatomi and others have been isolated onto very small pockets of land by comparison to what they once had access to, with a somewhat nebulous or uncertain Guarantee or an understanding, anyways, that they maintain the rights to hunt and fish in areas of land that would remain unoccupied by white settlers. The problem with that latter aspect of some of these land cession treaties is by the time you get to the 1830s, land has been uh, speculated and sold and resold all across southern Michigan, really the southern third of the Lower Peninsula, especially, and even into the southern half. So, about as far north as just south of where Mount Pleasant is nowadays, that land had absolutely been in, in great demand for settlers, mostly from out east, moving into Michigan. And that same land rush into Michigan was occurring elsewhere in what we now call the Great Lakes and Ohio Valleys, and as well, further south, than the Jackson administration, that would be Andrew Jackson, he plays a prominent role in our story from here on out. Andrew Jackson is elected president in 1828, so he takes office in 1829. And he serves two terms, and therefore he's president of the United States through much of the decade of the 1830s. And when Andrew Jackson is in office, his ideas become very influential on in how the middle part of the country that would be, including Michigan, ended up being developed and shaped. And Andrew Jackson pushes through Congress in 1830 a very sweeping law called the Indian Removal Act. And the Indian Removal Act necessitated that most Indian tribes east of the Mississippi River by a certain date would be removed by force if needed to a giant area of land set aside for them. This is taking the reserve or reservation concept and putting an interesting Twist on it, the state of Oklahoma nowadays has borders that run congruent to this giant area of land that was set aside for the indigenous peoples, and it was called the Indian Territory. The idea behind the Indian Removal Act was that all Indians east of the Mississippi River would be removed onto lands in the Indian Territory, which at the time encompassed again the modern day, where the modern day state of Oklahoma is as well as a little bit of land in in adjoining Kansas. Now, the Interremoval Act was a result of the concept that Lewis Cass and others expressed that indigenous peoples were incapable of living side-by-side white Euro-Americans because indigenous peoples lived in something to the effect of a permanent hunter state. And so, going all the way back to... Thomas Jefferson, actually, who was president in the early 1800s when the Louisiana Purchase was made, the idea behind setting aside a large area of land in the interior of the country to move indigenous peoples onto so they could be kind of forgotten about and the land that they had vacated would therefore be permanently open up to white settlement had been around for a while. Andrew Jackson very much was interested in this. Idea and in passage of the 1830 Indian Removal Act, the United States federal government was making a very, very strong policy that would impact the future of most, though not all, Indian tribes east of the Mississippi River. And the Potawatomi are going to come into our picture here. They had occupied the areas of land that were most coveted by white settlers at this time period. Southern Michigan, where the land was good for farming, and therefore there's a great demand for it for white settlers that were moving into the area. And when the Indian Removal Act of 1830 was passed, the primary uh, goal of it was actually to free up a large chunk of land in what is now the southeastern United States for the expansion of the plantation economy, uh, down south, in that part of the country, but it had a sweeping impact that certainly had an effect on the Great Lakes, indigenous peoples as well, such as those who lived in southern Michigan. When the act was passed, the federal government did two things, really. They went in and tried to renegotiate or suggest that they were going to negate the enforcement of, or their Agreement to abide by the treaties that had been negotiated in the decades prior. And the second thing it did was it set forth a process by which any Indian tribe who either refused to renegotiate their land cession treaties or was deemed by the federal government to be on an area of land that was just so coveted by white settlers that the federal government was willing to ignore most, if not all, the clauses of the previous land session Treaties they negotiated with them, that those people would be removed. And that is exactly what ends up happening to the Potawatomi, who lived in the southern part of Michigan. Potawatomi removals of 1830 are very similar to the largest act of Indian removals that many of you have probably heard of, and that would be the Trail of Tears, as it became known as. When the southeastern tribes, who were known at the time as the quote-unquote five symbolized tribes, that would be the Choctaw, the Cherokee, the Chickasaw, the Cree, and the Seminole, were forced off their lands in that part of the United States and then marched the long distance west, ultimately many dying along the way, to their uh, final destination in what we now call Oklahoma and a bit of Kansas. Same thing happened, though, with the Potawatomi. The Potawatomi were forcefully removed. Their numbers were smaller than the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, the Cree, uh, the Seminole, and some others. But the impact of the forced removal on the Potawatomi was no less. And in fact, it's really quite staggering when one thinks about it. The removal of the Potawatomi obviously had a great impact on the lands that they had once occupied, and the removal of the Potawatomi also is indicative of how this period of Indian removals worked, and I'm going to harken back to a point of usage of terminology that I used in part one uh, of this three-part series of Land Stories episodes, and that terminology is ethnic cleansing or genocide. The terminology seems very harsh, but when one looks at the attempt that was made to completely clear lands of an entire ethnicity or multiple ethnicities of peoples who had lived there for generations, uh, time immemorial, prior to the arrival of white European Americans. I think the term ethnic cleansing at a minimum is an appropriate term to use here. And when it comes to the Potawatomi, the removal was complicated in the eyes of both the Potawatomi and the United States federal government by two factors. One, some Potawatomi had been deemed to be sufficiently Americanized by having converted to Christianity, that they were allowed, quote-unquote, to stay. And those Potawatomi peoples who had not converted to Christianity, at least this is the argument that was made by government agents at the time, were those that were slated for removal. And those that ended up being removed were removed uh, not only because of the fact that some of them had converted to Christianity and others hadn't, so, in the case of the, the tribe bands that were removed were those who had not converted to Christianity, but at the same time, in the years leading up to the acts of removal, the Potawatomi in Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin, and there had been Potawatomi that had lived on um, recognized by the federal government lands, small reservations that had resulted in the treaties that were made at this time, had assigned a multitude of treaties with the United States government, they still maintained, they meaning the Potawatomi, uh, about 120 reservations or small little parcels of land that had been part of these land cession treaties. Well, when their Indian Removal Act had been passed in 1830, the idea behind it was that the U.S. government wasn't going to recognize any of those reserves in areas that were slated for Indian removal, So what happens is the government dispatches more uh, federal agents into the interior of the country and seek to negotiate sort of one more treaty that would sign into law the removal of the Potawatomi, and this becomes the Treaty of Chicago. It was a very um, messy treaty-making process when it comes to the Treaty of Chicago because some Potawatomi leaders signed the treaty others didn't and ultimately here in Michigan the treaty was not signed um, by many of the Pottawatomie peoples and those who were believed to be following or under the leadership of a Pottawatomie leader by the name of Leopold Polkagan they were allowed by the federal government to stay And Bokhagan himself became a bit of a spokesperson for the Potawatomi who were trying to stay in Michigan. Now, ultimately, though, the federal government got what it believed to be a sufficient number of Potawatomi signatures or agreements onto the paper of the Treaty of Chicago, and over the next few years then, as the Indian Removal Act is being implemented around the eastern part of the United States, ultimately this would come to impact Potawatomi. In 1833, there were six to 7,000 Potawatomi still living in Michigan. But by the time the Potawatomi removals are completed and then subsequent treaties are negotiated and then broken again and subsequent removals happen in Michigan, southern Michigan, there are very few Potawatomi remaining by the time you get to the latter part of the 1800s. And in terms of the Potawatomi as a whole, 1,200 Michigan Potawatomi were relocated to eastern Kansas. This is what became known as the Potawatomi Trail of Death, where in 1838, the United States Army came into southern Michigan. It rounded up the Potawatomi who were slayed for removal. It marched them to a staging, well, a series of staging points, including one in northern Indiana, and from there the Potawatomi were marched at gunpoint to their relocated lands, as they were known as, in Kansas. And along the way, dozens died, and the forced removal of the Potawatomi from southern Michigan, therefore, is ultimately how the lands that Lansing Community College sits on, ended up coming into the possession of non-Indigenous peoples. And the same is true of lands all around, not only Southern Michigan, but much of the Eastern United States that were impacted by the removals. So that Lansing Community College land acknowledgement statement, to circle back to where this episode, uh, this series of episodes begin, seems At its outset, to be quite simple, it is a short statement that recognizes in word and when spoken that Lansing Community College resides on lands that were the ancestral home of an indigenous peoples who, by various matters of course that we have discussed in this episode part three, in this episode part two, and in this episode part one, ended up being dispossessed of their land and I will conclude with this episode by once again reading that land acknowledgement statement. Lansing Community College occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg. Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi peoples. In particular, the City of Lansing and LCC reside on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seewick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the Vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org.
0: Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories.